Welcome to Office Hours with John Gardner. The John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education strives to advance higher education's larger goal of achieving equity and social justice. Hello, folks. Um, this is John Gardner, your host of Office Hours with John Gardner. I'm really pleased to be able to have a conversation today with Dr. Walter Kimbrough, who's been a long colleague of mine and who's currently president of Dillard University of New Orleans. As I was just um, sharing with my guest, I am so impressed with how much this college president really understands about students and what they're experiencing. Dr. Kimbrough, you have a fascinating journey yourself as to how you got here. I know this is not your first rodeo. Would you give, please, our listeners just a, a little vignette, a slice of your life? How, how did you, how did you get where you are now? Well, you know, for me, I uh, grew up in Atlanta. My father's a United Methodist minister. My mom started off working uh, for a computer software company before she started to teach at the college level to teach religion and philosophy. And I grew up thinking I wanted to be a veterinarian. I went to a magnet high school for math and science, went to the University of Georgia to be a veterinarian, um, got into vet school after three years and decided at that point in time, I did not want to be a veterinarian anymore by experiencing it. But I was active on campus and had a chance to meet a college president, Walter Washington, who was president of Alcorn State in Mississippi. And I said, you know what, I think at some point in time, I might want to be a president. And I'm 21 years old. And he says, well, this is what you should do. So I did what he said. And by 37, I was a college president. So it was on the fast track uh, to get there. And I came up through student affairs, which is, you know, the role that's travel for presidencies as well. Uh, so I think I violated a lot of rules along the way to get where I am. Uh, but this is Dillard is my second presidency. I'm in my 10th year here, and I spent seven and a half as president of Philander Smith in Little Rock, Arkansas, both uh, church-related institutions. The less traveled journey. That's that's quite remarkable. Thank you very much. That's a, that's a succinct uh, summary. And uh, along the way, you've been involved with a lot of innovations, and innovation in undergraduate education is really the subject of this office hours uh, series of conversations. Uh, would you just give us a brief taste of some of the uh, innovations you've been connected with that you would like others to know about you that really offer a special lens in understanding who Walter Kimbrough is? Well, you, you know, for me, I, I really try to look at the broader landscape of uh, things that are going on and figure out how can we apply this to places that aren't thought about. So when I think about it, Philander Smith College, um, and I came to a place of high pale, you know, student body, 80%, low graduation rate, less than 20%. And I just figured it's like, can't we do something? Can we even just be more hands-on, not spend more money, but can we be more hands-on to improve this graduation rate? And so that rate goes from 16% to over 40% by the time I leave in seven and a half years. And the national average for African-American students is 42%. So for us to get above that with an 80% you know, pale student population was a lot of hard work. People saying, how do we become much more intrusive? And you've seen the literature over the last couple of decades and people talk about intrusive advising. So how do we make that manifest and not just in the classroom or within the student affairs, but it's what the chaplain is doing as a part of his work as in, is intrusive advising. So we just made it a part of the culture of the institution to do that. Um, at a place like Dillard, you know, I'm coming here, uh, 
less than 10 years after Hurricane Katrina, and we still hadn't rebuilt the campus yet completely. So we're finishing those kinds of things, but it wasn't just the physical infrastructure that needed to be rebuilt. It was a student body that Diller had drawn from nationally, still high Pell eligible, 70, 75% Pell eligible, but always had a high graduation rate for that population around 50%. So what were some of the things that we could do at a place like Diller, particularly when we realized that through our own research that they conducted right before I got here, the number one reason that students did not return was unmet financial need. Um, I did my PhD at Georgia State. Georgia State gets a lot of kudos for innovation. They came up with this Panther Retention Grant. They said if we could do $500 grants, we could help people stay in school. I said for a small private school like Dillard, we could probably do $1,500, $2,000 grants and have the same effect. We go from 28% graduation rate to 50% the last two years. And that program, which we call SAFE, has had the same kind of impact. So it's using that Georgia State model at a small private institution. So it's just paying attention to what people are doing, putting our own spin on it, um, and then you know tracking it using the data to say this works or it doesn't work. And so I'm always looking for those kinds of opportunities uh, for the institution. Very, very uh, thoughtful. Um, early in your response, you talked about asking a question that hadn't been asked before. I, my own sense is that that's something that innovators are really especially gifted at, uh, you know, looking at a set of circumstances that others may have looked at, but you found different ways to ask questions about them. And uh, uh, am, am, I, am I correct? Do you think that's something that you do as a regular, uh, is that part of your built-in uh, secret sauce DNA, how you approach innovation? Yeah, this, you know, there, um, uh, Ron Heifetz, who teaches at Harvard, I read an article, he was interviewed, I want to say it was for Fast Company, it must have been 10, 15 years ago, and he talked about leadership. He said, part of being a leader is interrogating reality, and that's tough for people. How do you come in and ask the hard questions about those sacred cows on the campus to say, well, you know, I go to a place like Philander Smith, and they're just like, well, this is just who we take, so the graduation rate is going to be low. And then I go spend days in the archives and I start pulling out the catalogs from the 1930s and 40s where they talked about students that came in as A and B students that didn't have a lot of means, but they were really strong students. And over the course of time, they lowered those standards because they didn't feel like they could compete after integration. So they just said, we'll take C students. And I said, by the time I got here, y'all are taking D students and you expect to have the same, the same kind of results. That's not going to happen. So I had to interrogate the reality to say, this is not sustainable. And I think it's even unethical to say you're taking in people that have less than a 2.0 high school GPA. They're not going to graduate and they're going to be saddled with this debt. That's interrogating reality that some people didn't like. And it's like, no, we're going to, we'll still have a high pale population, but there are some students that could choose a Philander Smith and do very well that might have gone to the University of Arkansas, but would have a better experience with us. And the task yes. is to find those students. And we start to find those students. And I hear from them that are getting PhDs in medical school and dental school. And for a period of time, Philander didn't have people going to places like that. But now there are a ton of them that are doing that. Um, Dillard didn't have the same kind of disconnect, but we still had to ask those kinds of questions about programs that we had here, like our nursing program is the oldest in the state. And I said, that's great, but is it the best program in the state? So how do we make it the best program? Sure. So that's the hard part. It doesn't make you a fan with people sometimes to interrogate reality, but I think that's a key part of leadership. I, I agree. I, I, 
hope our listeners are going to walk away and remember asking themselves about interrogating reality. Uh, you made a comment a minute ago about students at Philander Smith versus, say, the University of Arkansas and what might, a, might, what might make a better experience. When you talk about a better experience, what do you most want to, to be in that better experience? And how is that related to innovation? Yeah, so, I, you know, I think... You know, over the course of, you know, we go back to Brown versus Board, and after that pass, you saw this precipitous drop of African American students attending um, HBCUs. Mm -hmm. And so right now we're about 9% of African American students attend HBCUs. I think that number for a lot of students probably should be closer to 20%. And the reason I say that is that, that when you start to, you know, go and dig into those numbers and you disaggregate the data, you'll see on some campuses, the campus graduation rate might be 60%, but for black students it's less than 40% and no one says anything about that. So yes, they're at a big flagship institution and not so much the flagships because the flagships are getting the cream of the crop. You might be at a multi-directional, if you will, state institution that people have sold those students to say, this is better than the HBCU, but that student is there and they're lost and they don't have access to those resources. So they, you know, they attend the institution, but they don't have true access. There isn't someone there who they're connected with that is making sure that they know, you know, all the different opportunities that are available to them. And so to have a, a college experience, even if it's at a small institution that people don't know a lot about, but you're able to have a fulfilling experience, to me that that makes sense versus going to a brand name institution where you know, you don't get the same, you don't get the full benefit. And so you've gone to this place and you're lost, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the all the opportunities that are available. I mean, just, just really quickly, my, my wife used to be our pre-law advisor. Now she works for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. They're doing this national program uh, where they're selecting 10 students a year that will get a full ride to um, law school, and then they'll support their career for eight years um, to create these civil rights attorneys. And so she got to look at 400 applications, and she's looking at these African American students that went to Ivy League institutions that have lower than average national LSAT scores. And at Dillard, we're sending a ton of people to law school, and one of our students made the 10. And she just kept thinking, like, here are some students who went to this Ivy League institution that would have been much better off at Dillard because we offered free LSAT prep, which is the main barrier for African-American students going to law school. So if the national average for black students is, 40, is 142 and our students are averaging 152, which is a national average in general, and if less than half of all black students who apply to law school get in anywhere and our acceptance rate is over 90 percent, they're better off coming here. <laughs> People might not know about it, but you come to Dillard, you get into law school with money to go. And it, but most people will think, go to the Ivy, go to the flagship, that's going to help you get into law school. Not necessarily. Yeah. So um, it sounds like you, uh, you really have, you can be very specific about what's the secret sauce of why HBCUs are so much more effective in many ways. Do you, do you think if uh, predominantly white institutions wanted to emulate that, that they could ever do it? Personally, I'm skeptical that they could, but what do you think? I, I think that it could be done in, in certain um in certain senses, I think there are some models for that. You know, I, I think about my friend Sean Harper at Southern Cal, and he's written a lot about people saying, well, they can't find the students. He says, you don't have a problem finding them to play football or to play basketball. So he's like, how, how can you say you can't find? You have all the resources. So 
a place that has a lot of resources, they could do a better job with those students that are there, but that's not what they choose to do. And that's fine. That's, you know, I, I don't begrudge those institutions. And I think students and families have to decide if that institution has their best interests at heart. At a place like Dillard, if, if we're gonna be engaged with you, we're gonna be engaged with you all the way. So I, I mean, I write a ton of letters of recommendation. How can I write the letter? I actually know the student. I can tell you the story and I tell our students that I only will write a letter of recommendation if I can write it without looking at your resume. If I have to see your resume, that means I don't know you well enough to write your, and I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna regurgitate your resume for a recommendation. I don't do that. I need to write something that's not on there. So either you've taken a class with me or you've been in a program that I'm leading. Do, something. You, teach as a, do you teach as a college president? Yeah, I do, at least once a year. You do? Yeah. So that's, you know, th those are the kinds of things I think that are important um, that I think not just HBCUs, I think, you know, small and particularly small religious institutions are able to do those kinds of things. Uh, but I think we're just in America, people just feel like I need to go to the big brand name because we're a brand name nation and everybody wants to go to the big brand name. But then they graduate and they're just like, there were some certain things I didn't get from that experience that the person who goes to the small HBCU got plus some. And I think we've got to present that much more balanced to people. Yes. Well, in effect, then, that you're really talking about what's the meaning of the brand name historically black college and university. And that's a story that in listening to you, I can see how you know persuasive and articulate you are at that. But still, we need to broaden the understanding of why these hundred plus institutions are uh, still very needed. They're, right. they're doing things that the rest of us aren't. Um, you mentioned um, earlier in your comments about the uh, less uh, traditional or common route to a presidency, of, namely of a student affairs background. Um, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit on that, if you would, please. Well, so I think I, I'm trying to think of the latest um, ACE data, uh, their, their survey of the American president. And yeah. it's probably about four, five, six percent of presidents come from a student affairs background because we still have this idea, even though I think it's changing some, but it's usually someone that comes up through the faculty ranks and full professor and dean and provost. And that still is a preferred method. I think there are, there are some openings, you know, other areas, but student affairs is always sort of you know, been sort of last in terms of pipelines for a presidency. And when I talk to people about it, I says, the, the, I, you know, the president for 2021, 2022, where are, where are your potential fires? You know, there are things that the student affairs people have dealt with. So when you talk about COVID and health outbreaks, student affairs folks, we're working with the student health because normally that reports to us. So we're dealing with student health. We're talking about hazing issues, which are just on 60 minutes. That's student affairs. We're talking about Title IX issues. Student affairs is going to be involved in that. When you start talking about the things that will make the front page news or um, go viral on social media, they're normally things that the student affairs people have had to deal with before. And if you've just been the faculty member and you, you, know, you can go home at five o'clock and you don't worry about those things, it's a shock for a lot of people, which is, I think, one of the reasons why the tenure of presidents continues to decline, because it's stressful if you're not used to that lifestyle. Student affairs folks, my first job was coordinator Greek life at Emory University. I've seen it all after, after three years at Emory. I could deal with anything. I mean, that's it's a high profile Greek system that had two rapes on fraternity road the semester before I started. So I jumped into the fire, okay? 
I think that it's I think it's the perfect training ground for a modern day presidency because you're dealing with all kinds of constituencies, both on and off campus. That's your job. And I hope you're talking to some of these big search firms and giving them some professional development about what they need to be looking for in future I, presidents. I really I, do. I tell well, you know, so I'm in a I'm in a situation where, you know, I announced this is my last year at Dillard. So I talk to search firms all the time. And to be completely honest, you still have search committees and institutions who are still looking for the same model. They aren't looking for that progressive type person. So once again, someone like me, I'm going to lose out because of pedigree bias and sector bias. So why couldn't someone like me lead a flagship? Well, you haven't been at a, a big, you know, big institution with a, um, a, a power five football conference. I mean, that's, you know, okay, that's, you know, what do you think that gets you? And to me, that's, it's just disheartening that people still look to say, well, we need someone from these kinds of institutions to lead this. When you start to look at the last few people that they've had at the institution have been there a short amount of time. So I try to share that message, but people still have stuck in their mind. We need someone or they're looking for status. So, you know, we're here. If we get a president who was a VP at a higher ranked institution, that's going to just, you know, be imbued on us. And now we'll move up, you know, through osmosis. And it doesn't work like that either. So I don't well, think, pe I'm, I don't I'm think people want leaders. I'm betting you're going to come out just fine in this. Be selective. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you'll get a, a good fit. That's what I want for you. Right. You know, if you if somebody said, I'd like, maybe if a student asks you this, I'd like to grow up and be like you, Dr. Kimbrough, what would you tell them they have to do? Um, I always tell people, I, I think the, the key to life, and there was a, an author who died maybe a decade ago. His name is Elaine Harris. He's actually from Arkansas. He said, the key to life is to find something that you love doing that you would do for free and find a way to get paid to do it. And I live by that. So that's what I would tell them. I, I've, I would do this every day for free. I love what I do, um, even at the president level. But I, I could have just remained a chief student affairs officer. I love doing that. And I could have done that every day. So I think that's the key. And then if you find that, because I think sometimes people say, I think I want to be a president. And I, I think uh, Jim Cook, who was at Old Dominion, told me, he said, uh, you don't really know until you get closer to it. I was director of student activities and we went to lunch and I was telling him, like, oh, I think I want to be a president. He says, all right, when you get closer to it, we'll talk. You know, he's like, I want you to make sure you see it up close. And then once I saw it up close in person, I was like, no, yeah, I think I can do this. I think this is good for me. And I've had people who work for me just like, mm, I don't want your job. I don't want to have to deal with that. That's a good decision too. So <laughs> I, I think that, you know, as, as people progress, they get to really see if that's what they want to do. But I just, I think the key to life is just finding what you love doing. I think you start with that. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I hope if you take another presidency, I, at least in a university or college, I hope you don't ever get too far away from the students so they will not yeah. be able to hear what you just said. When you look at higher education uh, overall and you think of innovation, what kinds of innovations, given the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and the gross inequalities in our country, what kind of innovations are most needed right now? What have we got to rethink? What right. are we not so doing? The, the, the biggest challenge, and I see it even on a campus like ours, is that um, it is managing the cost of higher education that continues to increase. And I mean, I'm at a, a person that has to, you know, make proposals about tuition and fee increases. Um, and you balance that with um, a, a, uh, a faculty and staff that are well-educated 
and they expect an increase every year too. I mean, the more degrees people have, the more money they expect to make, and they expect to make more of it every and every year. You have two diametrically opposed ideas that are at war with each other, and we don't want to talk about it openly because that really is the issue. You, you tell faculty and staff, you can get a raise every year. We're going to have to charge it to the students, students, faculty, uh, government officials, members of Congress. This costs too much. Y'all need to cut your costs. So where do you cut the cost from when you got your, your employment you know, class saying, I need more, and those that you serve say, I'm paying too much for it? Where does that money come from? And that's the thing that I think we've got to really wrestle with in, in all of higher education. Um, they're two competing interests and, you know, people in government don't want it. They don't want to give you an increase in Pell Grants because they're like, all you're going to do is jack up your tuition and fees again. So we don't want to give you any more money because you're just going to increase it. It's, we haven't figured out the, the business model for, for higher education. And I, I don't know what the answer is. Well, you do have Flo, a lot of other answers. And uh, what would your final word of advice on this uh, session of Office Hours be about innovation? Uh, I'm hoping that we're going to have a lot of people listening to this who either see themselves as current or potential innovators. And right. you talked earlier about your ability to look at things and to interrogate reality. Um, give us one more thing that you'd like to see everybody thinking about being an innovator. Well, you know, I, I think part of the, the innovation that has to happen, it, I mean, it really is using a small college model approach to say, how do we become much more just intrusive in the lives of students and families as a whole? Uh, and it's, it's more time consuming as well. I mean, that's part of the challenge, but really getting to know people because I think higher education is not just a place where people come to get a degree. Higher education now is responsible for a large number of social services. There is a lot of research out there about food and housing insecurity for college students. And you know, we weren't talking about this 30 years ago, but now there are you know, big studies that are being done to say, what percentage of your students have any kind of food security during the year? And then what's your responsibility? You have major institutions that are creating um, you know, food pantries. I, I graduated from the University of Georgia. I went to speak there about five or six years ago, and I saw this huge food pantry. And I'm like, this is the flagship for the state of Georgia with a food pantry. Right. And I was just like, this is just crazy to me. But those are the kinds of you know innovations I think we've made, but we've got to continue to figure out because higher ed is being asked to play more and more of a, a service role, um, social service role that I think it's okay for us to, to do, um, but I think there's still broader issues that in society we've got to figure out because we're just a stopgap for a small portion of the nation. So, I mean, it helps those students out, but what about the large number of people that don't go to college and they have insecurities too? Uh, so I think a lot about that as well. Are there kinds of things that you haven't yet been able to do as an innovator that you would hope to do in your next post that you would find as satisfying and as meaningful in your life and what you have been doing? Is there a kind of unfulfilled aspiration here? Um, you're hungry for? Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, it's, it's going to relate back to um, the financing of higher education. I mean, you know, I, I want to find the right partner that will go in on a bet with me to say, look, what if you gave a small under-resourced institution a, a mega gift, two, $300 million, and you simply spent the interest on that to help it's, it's like a Berea kind of model, but for yeah. like an HBCU, 
What if you did that? I mean, Berea's graduation rate is almost 70%. They're 99%. Pale I've been there a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. What What if you replicated that somewhere else? Like, because I think their endowment is probably a billion dollars. So what if you did that and did three, four hundred million dollars for an HBCU and replicated it to sort of see that becomes the kind of transformation we haven't seen. But yeah, I want somebody to take me up on that bed and let's say, let's see how that works. Because I think if we can start to get different kinds of investors to do that in different pockets around the country with more institutions and not keep giving the same amount of money to institutions with $50 billion endowments that don't need any more money. I think you could really impact a broader swath of American life. So that's the kind of thing I would like to see happen. We're going to give you a recording of this interview so that you can share that with a potential mega donor. All right. Um, I'm confident you're going to be able to have that opportunity. And, and I want you to know that I am going to recommend you to my former Congressman, uh, James Clyburn, that you need to be the official spokesperson for getting more money and build back better yeah, to okay, support right. your institutions. And, and actually, you have spoken about innovation uh, much more broadly than only the historically Black college uh, in university right. sector. And uh, I, as I said earlier, I hope you're going to continue to be in a position where you can talk to aspiring students. I want to thank you very much. I love your energy. Haven't lost your mojo after 17 years and one of the toughest jobs in America. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for joining us for Office Hours with John Gardner. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Gardner Institute. And we wish to thank our guests and the entire team who make this podcast possible.